Welcome to the Global Development Institute podcast. Based at the University of Manchester, we're Europe's largest research and teaching institute addressing poverty and inequality. Each episode will bring you the latest thinking, insights and debate in development studies. delighted that we have this great panel here today. Thank you for those joining us in the room and those joining us online. Uh, I think this is an incredibly important topic. In many ways, the uh, development and rollout of COVID-19 vaccines is an incredible achievement that it happened so quickly that it has helped to control the pandemic in some parts of the world. Uh, But at the same time, it has been so incredibly uneven in terms of who has got access to COVID-19 vaccines and when. Many countries have prioritized more vulnerable people and health workers domestically in who gets vaccines first, but those kind of priorities have uh, not been present internationally in that it's uh, national citizens first, especially in higher income countries that have been prioritized over more vulnerable people in low and lower middle income countries. Uh, So there's been, uh, we're all aware that there's significant uh, amount of vaccine inequality. What we would like to do in today's session is have, it's all over two years now since the WHO declared this pandemic. It's well over a year since vaccines started to be rolled out. It's a good time to reflect on what has actually caused COVID-19 vaccine inequality. Uh, Secondly, what still needs to be done for access to COVID-19 vaccines? This pandemic is is far from over and many people still do not have access to vaccines. And the third issue we'd like to address is what can we learn and what needs to be done to prevent such inequalities in the future for future uh, pandemics and potentially for for broader access to health products. We're going to try and have uh, a format where we move between the different panelists and cover each of these issues. So the first question I'm going to ask each of the panelists to address is what has caused uh, COVID-19 vaccine inequality? And I'm going to start with uh, Ken and then move to Lara and then to Karar on on this issue first. So thanks again, Ken, for joining Thanks, Rory. Uh, thanks for inviting me, and thanks to people who are here uh, in person and virtually. Uh, what has caused vaccine inequality is obviously a huge, huge uh, topic, and I'm just going to focus very briefly on two sort of overriding things, and then let Karar and Laura build on what I would say and add their own, of course. The first, I think, has been a, an utter lack of cooperation around the production and distribution of vaccines. And it starts from when the pandemic started. Uh, there's an organization um, based in Norway called CEPI, which is the Coalition for Academic Preparedness Innovations, which was funding a series of vaccine, a set of vaccine produ- candidates then. And of course, its funding had attached to it access conditions, which says if you take our money, and then you're successful, you will make these vaccines widely available. And what widely available meant was sell them to provide them to a global purchasing agency called COVAX, as we can talk about. But what happened was that while CEPI was doing that, individual governments were doing the same thing. 
So, and the same candidates that CEPI was supporting were the same candidates that the UK government were supporting and the same candidates that the US government was supporting and so on. And so uh, because the US and the UK and individual governments gave the vaccine developers a lot more money, their access conditions, which were sort of us, not serve this global uh, purchasing agency, they won out. So the first thing is that there was a, a lack of cooperation there and the organization that was created to address that was essentially outgunned, to put it simply. The second then is the agency that was created to purchase vaccines jointly and then sell them or give them, depending on the income status of country around the globe, uh, because countries, starting with wealthy countries, were buying vaccines directly, this agency, which is called COVAX, didn't get vaccines. Um, and then once it became clear that the first batches of vaccines that were going to come off the line, and no one knew at the time when they would, when they would be available, but it turned out by the end of 2020, once it became clear that those first doses were going to go to the countries that bought them directly from the, produce, from the vaccine developers, rather than through the international agency COVAX, then any country who had the means started to do that. And that's why sort of the first, uh, um, like that's where lower income countries got really left out. A lot of middle income countries were able to get into that game of buying vaccines on their own as well. They did it late or later than the wealthiest countries did. But uh, it took a lot longer until eventually the African Union, for example, started doing that. Um, I would say just before moving on to the next big thing that I think there might have been a small a missed opportunity from many lower income countries in which they had a resource that I think got underexploited, which is that many of the late stage clinical trials were conducted in low income countries. And it would have not been unfeasible for a country to say, if you want access to the virus that's floating around our country, because that's what you need if you're going to run a clinical trial, then we better get some of the product. And uh, I've been spending the last two years trying to see if any country actually did that. And so far, I'm not able to find any country that actually sort of leverage what I would call sort of its virus power. Um, just another resource, the wealthier countries said, we're going to give you money, which if we don't give you the money, you can't produce your vaccines. Countries that are hosting clinical trials could have, in theory, said, we're going to give you access to the genetic resources that you need to conduct your trials. Um, and it, did, it does seem to me that wealthier countries played their resource differently or more aggressively, I would say, than many poorer countries mm -hmm. did. The second thing that I just want to say before moving on is that is this issue of production. It's strange. There hasn't been enough. Now, it's strange to say there hasn't been enough, because in a normal year before the pandemic, people have probably seen these figures, but in a normal year before the pandemic, the world produced and consumed somewhere between three and four, maybe five in a bad year, doses of vaccines. And in 2021, we produced 12 billion doses of vaccines just for COVID. And we still managed to produce all of the other vaccines for all of the other things that vaccines are used for. So it's, I do think it's hard to say with a straight face that there hasn't been enough production. But on the other hand, because there's been unprecedented, a crazy amount of production. But on the other hand, I will say with a straight face, there hasn't been enough production. 
And all of those distributional issues about who gets the vaccines are obviously much more intense given relative to the size of the pie. Um, some of the vaccine producers have been much more active in decentralizing their production, setting up partnerships with facilities around the globe. So the one that stands out the most for this is the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. They've entered into partnerships for production of this in Argentina, Brazil, Thailand, South Korea, um, and most obviously their main partner is the Serum Institute of India. Um, other vaccine producers have been much less reticent, uh, much more reticent, and, and sort of essentially kept all of their production more or less centralized. Uh, the, the mRNA vaccine produced by Pfizer and BioNTech, essentially everything is within Pfizer and BioNTech. Uh, Moderna, very centralized. But the, the Chinese vac vaccines have also been very centralized. So it's not just sort of a mRNA versus in some ways, the AstraZeneca one stands out for being the most decentralized. We need more local, we need more production, and we need more technology transfer from the originators to sort of distribute and decentralize the production on a global scale. I think that at this point in March of 2022, there's probably not a person on the planet Earth who doesn't say that as well. We need more technology transfer to enable local production of vaccines for more producers in more countries. The problem is it's one of those things, like many things that everybody says, that's really hard to put in action because nobody knows how to do that. Um, it's not clear. Uh, you certainly, you can't force them to share their technology. You don't know what they're gonna share. It may be, you know, you could have perhaps put, we'll get to this maybe in certain ways in the future, you could have perhaps put goes into the access conditions. If you want this money, you have to produce not just enough vaccines for us, but enough vaccines for the world, or you have to share your technology with X number of companies. But again, I think that's one of those things, and I fully advocate that in principle, but again, that's one of those things that I think is easy to say and hard to do because it's not clear how you benchmark that, how you know what is enough, how you monitor how, you, how much they're doing. I don't think there's an easy solution there. Um, so I'm gonna turn it over to Karar and Laura. I just wanted to say one last thing, which is that there's been, it's tempting to look at this in a very sort of certain way. We know what happened. We know what could have happened. We know if we had done this instead, we would have had an alternative outcome. There's a huge amount of contingency. And in some ways there are sort of things that this all could have been a lot worse and it all could have been a lot better. It all could have been a lot worse if as Rory said, the vaccine development wasn't as successful as it was. When the pandemic started in February, January of 2020, nobody really believed that we were gonna get effective vaccines within a year. Um, it just seemed completely unrealistic. And so it all could have been a lot worse or we could have had a lot more vaccine equality in the fact that none of us had any. Um, it also could have been a lot better. It would have been a lot better if the Delta wave hadn't ravaged India a year ago, because India was the biggest supplier to COVAX, this global scheme. And once the Delta wave hit India, then all of the, all the vaccines that were produced in India for the next six months were kept in India. And so a lot of the vaccine inequality is sort of a South-South inequality that was a function of 
really bad luck. Of course, that's also a function of the fact that production was overly centralized. There just weren't enough producers. And in retrospect, it's too bad that basically this COVAX scheme was relying so much on one producer in, in one country. But these are contingency things. I mean, the Delta wave didn't have to, you know, hit India so hard in March. And if Delta wave hadn't hit India so hard in March or last year, the inequality scenarios that we're looking at would have been different. So I'll leave it there just with that point that just there's, there's, there's a lot of things that just happen that are totally out of our control and they're unknowable. Um, and so beware of people who, beware of this, this, if we had done this, then we would have had that outcome. Thanks, Ken. Uh, Lara, uh, if you're okay to come in next. Now, I fully agree with Ken already shared. And I think we also have to look into the reality in countries where we work as Doctors Without Borders these days. So while in high-income countries, we see fig figures over 70% and vaccination rates, we work in countries like Chad, Burundi, or the DRC. Where, where it's like around 1%. And just maybe to add to what Ken already said, uh, I want to look into two factors. And the first one is the framing, right? I feel like we all remember well when, when this all started, we heard the leaders of high-income countries talking about global solidarity, about like a global public good. When in reality, they did not a lot in the, in the first months when the vaccine was on the market to really enable global solidarity and the global access to these public goods um, because they were not able and not willing to ch challenge pharmaceutical companies. And instead, we saw a really nationalistic approach and response to the pandemic. And I think, secondly, it's, it's crucial to see how public and private partners came together. And I think it's important to look, while the leaders promised global solidarity, in particular, countries with mRNA originator companies uh, like the US and Germany did nothing to challenge the monopolies of these companies. Until today, we haven't seen one bilateral tech transfer from BioNTech, Pfizer or Moderna to enable manufacturer in a low or middle income countries. And I think these are just two factors um, just underlining the, the, the problem with vaccine inequality. And I'm yeah, looking forward to this lecture to explore also what we can do now and also what we can do better for the next pandemic. Maybe over to you now, Karar. Um, yeah, I mean, probably Ken and Laura pretty much covered the majority of it. I would probably just kind of take us back to when the pandemic first hit or when, I don't know if you guys recall some of the um, super spreading events. This guy was coming over from like a chalet in Geneva or something. And I remember at that time, um, in my head, I was thinking, here we go again. We've heard it all before, right? We had Zika, a lot of kind of public frenzy. Nothing really came of it on that global scale. The H1N1, to some extent, 2009. Again, big pandemonium. The virus didn't really kind of play out to the extent and the severity that we expected. So when COVID-19 hit, certainly in my mind, I was thinking, okay, here's, uh, here's the media kind of overinflating the issue. Um, and this will subside in a matter of weeks. Um, and I think this kind of inequality happened by design in that all these kind of previous pandemics, there was an element of exceptionalism in that actually this was something that was always going to hit no middle-income countries, whether it be Ebola, all the other kind of weird and wonderful neglected tropical diseases, diseases of, of, of kind of disease of pandemic potential. So there was this element of, okay, we've heard the threat before, but we haven't really seen it play out, let's say in our lifetime, in our professional kind of lifetime, to that extent. And so there was this element of, 
yeah, okay, we, we, we are concerned. The WHO, we've heard, we've, we've kind of heard the calls of WHO and others, but this surely can't be as bad as what they're saying it can be. And so I think when, when this thing became a reality and all of a sudden the, oh, go and work from home for two weeks became, this is good, we're gonna be here for, for, for a kind of long haul. You had kind of a handful of countries that essentially said, okay, in, in kind of previous uh, scenarios, as in this one, a pharmaceutical commodity, AKA a vaccine is probably gonna be what is gonna get us out of this mess. Now, the reason why we don't have a vaccine in the market already is because there are market failures in global health R&D. Because why? Essentially, when it comes to global health R&D, your client are traditionally low middle income countries, which often don't have the ability to pay. So you tend to find diseases that are specific to low middle income countries or diseases whereby they're not seen as commercially viable areas to kind of invest in. Prime example, antibiotic resistance, um, the WHO's priority pathogens list. So even, for example, with MERS, SARS, we knew, we knew these pathogens existed. The WHO has a whole list of them. You can go on the website now and check. But why haven't we had commodities for these R&D um, priorities? And the reason being is because which pharmaceutical company, if I was a pharmaceutical executive, why would I bet all my money, R&D, human resources, on a possibility? It just doesn't make sense. You're more likely to put that in, on, in a non-communicable disease whereby the return on investment is going to be a lot higher. This could be anything from cardiovascular diseases, whereby you have a customer base and you're going to get return on investment. So I think by the very design, the fact that we haven't had, or we didn't have a, a COVID-19 uh, vaccine, so to say, that was because, as I said, the kind of pandemics in general or, or, or these disease areas, they're not considered potentially viable areas um, for investment. And that goes back to what Ken was saying around then what was set up post Ebola was the CEPI, so the Center um, or the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. This was an, an agency that essentially said, okay, here's the WHO's list of priority pathogens. We're gonna attempt to, to kind of front load investment to try and entice development of these weird and wonderful vaccines for these diseases, which they may never happen, but they almost saw themselves as the world's insurance policy. So when the pandemic first hit, you have a lot of countries sitting on the fence thinking, okay, if this turns out and plays out like Zika, why would I engage in bilateral deals potentially worth millions of dollars, not billions? It's something that may not play out. And then what am I gonna do, water my grass with it? So you have essentially countries that have sat on the fence, countries that probably had and, you know, is it a quite kind of advanced scientific community? Is it luck? Is it kind of on economic grounds? But a handful of countries said, okay, we need to put upfront investment at risk. And we should be willing to say that investment, if it goes south, we're willing to stand in front of our respective electorate and say, we put our hands up, we made a mistake, we've squandered X billion dollars. And we've seen what? The US, through something called Operation Warp Speed, put in this early investment that Ken was talking about at risk knowing full well that at the time, some of the rhetoric around vaccine and development and nutrition, I think it was one in 10 that was being cited of vaccines will become successful. You had the likes of the US through Operation Warp Speed, investing heavily in the likes of mRNA technology by Pfizer. The UK, if you guys have a look online, they have something called the National Vaccine Deployment Plan. And you look at the portfolio of the vaccines that the UK hedged its bet on, and actually it was at five or six vaccines, which range anything from 100 million doses from the likes of AstraZeneca, homegrown domestic vaccine. I think the lowest was about 17 million doses and that was a Moderna vaccine. So when you look at their kind of population, as well as some of the vaccines they procured across the spectrum, they hedged their bets and said, okay, if all these vaccines fail, only one succeeds, at a minimum, we should be able to cover our most vulnerable. So this was the, the kind of approach adopted by a select handful of countries. Other countries stood on the fence and said, okay, 
We're going to wait until this thing kind of fully plays out. At that time, we've had the WHO set up this COVAX facility that Ken was talking about. And that was nothing more than an iterative design of what we saw in 2009. So 2009, we saw something called the Vaccine Deployment Initiative. I said the pandemic hit as it did in, 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 with COVID-19, but the access piece back then was a strictly a donation endeavor. So you had a handful of high-income countries bought the vaccine. It quickly became evident that this wasn't going to blow out to the extent that we thought it was. And all of a sudden, I've got this vaccine which I've purchased that I know that I'm not going to need now. And so a lot of these countries, the US, the UK, and others said, we want to donate, donate these to non-medical countries. Now, in the deja vu in this particular scenario, as, as was the case back then, was that the doses arrived in non-medical countries after the peak had subsided. So, you know, when you say, what, are we surprised by vaccine inequality this time around? Probably not. And I think going back to what Ken was saying around this, um, this kind of luck and how things played out, you have the likes of India, for example, one of the largest vaccine manufacturers by volume, not by value, by volume. So they adopt a high value or high volume, sorry, low price model. So they attempt to kind of vaccinate the world through cheap and cheaper vaccines. And essentially with India, as, as Ken highlighted, they were one of the, one of the companies that are in the Serum Institute of India was tasked with supplying the bulk of what is WHO mechanism, the COVAX, was going to offer vaccines. So they had 2 million doses that they wanted to offer to non-medical countries half of which was coming from one company. Now, was it naive to potentially rely on one company? In hindsight, yeah, at the time, a lot of colleagues, including MSF and others were saying, why is it that we're relying on one company to supply the world's vaccine? This was at the time the AstraZeneca vaccine. And so when India, as I said, sat on the fence, probably didn't see this play out as they did. All of a sudden, they had a domestic company that was producing huge volumes for export. And then what did they do when they realized actually, you know what hit the fan? they adopted a blunt instrument of an export control. And so that was probably the Achilles heel of COVAX, and it probably had it not been for that, the rhetoric, you know, would we have seen the COVAX heads get the Nobel Peace Prize? I don't know if they did. I think there was some, some kind of rumors or murmurs of that. We would have seen this play out very differently in that I think the access piece would have been expedited relative to what we saw play out now. Um, and so, you know, I, I think there is, you know, to kind of sum up very quickly, I think this was inevitable in that this is human nature. You put on your own oxygen mask before putting on the oxygen mask of others. And actually, how infuriated would it have been in the UK had, for example, the UK government said, okay, we've vaccinated our healthcare workers. We're going to redirect all the supply to low medical countries. You know, at the end of the day, this is a, this is a tax funded or, or kind of a tax backed purchase. And as a result, you can argue each government is only responsible for its people, essentially. So, you know, whether you call it kind of pop, rising populism or kind of nationalism. Your job, first and foremost, as a government is to protect your own. Now, the irony is with an infectious disease such as this, you're only as safe or you're only as strong as your weakest link. And that's something that epidemiologists and, and the global health community has been trying to drum home. But essentially, I mean, when you, when you kind of hear the, the kind of NHS is on the brink of collapse, when you see the kind of pandemonium in the streets, you're going to say, okay, I've protected my most vulnerable. And they, in the UK, for example, priority groups one to nine or one to five, they count for about 30 million doses or 30 million individuals, sorry. We reached that milestone fairly quickly once the, once the kind of vaccination campaign has started. Then you could argue thereafter, everything else should have been directed globally. But then bear in mind the twin objectives of the vaccine are what? First and foremost, to protect the individual. And secondly, to minimize the, the kind of the virus in your body, to minimize community transmission. And so you can argue once high-income countries have protected their most vulnerable, in line with what the WHO have said, did they get greedy? Did they kind of see the economic impacts 
start that way. And as a result, they said, actually, you know what? We're going to pursue the community transmission piece. And as a result, we're going to vaccinate healthy 30-year-olds. And you guys probably recall when you guys offered the vaccine, a lot of my friends certainly were like, actually, if, if all, all the messages I've been hearing is I'm fit and healthy, I don't need this. Why is it all of a sudden I'm being offered this vaccine when we've been told it's technically something that affects the elderly most or the most kind of clinically vulnerable? So yeah, I think to sum up, there was an element, element of inevitability and this kind of luck piece that uh, Ken was talking about. Yeah, had the COVAX facility, the doses they had contracted played out, maybe we would not have seen the divergence that we're seeing now. And just to say, so far, 14% of uh, people in low-income countries have received one dose. Um, and we know that 57% of countries are off track from reaching the WHO's 70% global target, which was supposed to hit in three months' time. Um, so yeah, that would be all, all for me. So just picking up then, Kara, on that point you ended with, we still have considerable amount of vaccine inequality. So our next question is, what needs to happen now still to fight and combat COVID-19 vaccine inequality? Lara, are you okay to start on this question? Sure, I'm happy to. Can you hear me this time? Yes, perfect. Wonderful. Now I get the, I get this question quite a lot. Also, when I speak to to like politicians and and policy decision makers in high income countries, and I find it quite outstanding that even after two years in the pandemic, they still pretend this is some kind of like natural disaster. They feel very sorry about it, and they think it's very unfortunate, but they can't really do much about. It. And I think this is a point where we have to look a bit closer because this is simply not true, right? We're we're still pretending well vaccines are being first produced in Europe and this is the way things are and so it continues and I think this is extremely dangerous when we're not going to change it now also for like future pandemics and other health emergencies like tuberculosis for example so what we did at the MSF access campaign is we looked actually what happened in Europe and North America so BioNTech, Pfizer and Moderna they did not build factories from scratch to start the mRNA production facility. They actually transferred their technology into knowledge how to produce an mRNA vaccine to able and existing manufacturers. And the beauty of the beauty of the mRNA technology is that you don't need a traditional vaccine manufacturer, right? And so you just have a, a bigger group of manufacturers to, to employ and to, to look at. And um, what we saw, for example, in Europe is that Moderna worked together with Rovi, a Spanish-based company with no prior experience in vaccine manufacturing, but instead they're working on injectables. So you can actually also work with producers of injectable medicines to then start mRNA production. And I think this is just something where we have to acknowledge that this is not exclusively done in Europe or North America, but this could be done in, in lots of middle-income countries. So in our report of the MSF Access Campaign and other um, actors in global health, we looked in particular at these manufacturers in, for example, African countries, in India, in Indonesia, in South America, and we found more than 100 companies able to start producing mRNA vaccines if one of the originators, speaking about Moderna, BioNTech, and Pfizer, would share the technology. And I think this is something we all have to keep in mind because COVID is not probably, unfortunately, not the last pandemic we will face. And also we have to uh, keep in mind the potential of the mRNA technology for other 
health uh, issues like tuberculosis, malaria, and so on and so forth. And I think if we are not able to now start and set up this more sustainable infrastructure, we will be in a very similar situation again and again and again. And maybe just to finish on that, um, now a year with the vaccine on the market, I think some, some leaders of high-income countries are extremely proud that they're now donating doses. And I agree, it's, it's better to donate doses than throwing them away. However, this is clearly not sustainable. And I think we have all seen the reports in the news that like some doses were donated to African countries without any announcement. And then also we found out that they were extremely close to the expiry date. And so some people say, well, the low take up of vaccines in African countries is because these people don't want the vaccine. And I think this is an extremely tricky argument because just for one second, let us imagine that the vaccination campaign against COVID-19 in Europe or in the US would have been based on donations where no one would know when they would arrive what kind of product you would see and what would be the follow-up donation. So I think just to be fair here, if everyone would have access to the vaccine on a similar level, I think also the vaccination take up in African countries would be different. I think that's it from me on that. Over to you guys again. Thank you, Laura. Uh, are you okay? Yeah, okay, so I guess as we stand today, where do, where, where do we go from here? I would probably use the four Ds as the kind of framing, and these are doses, dollars, domestic vaccine manufacturing, and domestic health systems. On the first one of doses, we know as Laura mentioned, the current initiative is based heavily on donations. It wasn't meant to be, it was supposed to be a COVAX procuring and COVAX delivering, but you know, nevertheless, after high countries have had their fill, they're now saying we wanna donate these doses. These pledges were made a while ago. Um, However, 30% of the doses pledged by high-income countries have yet to be delivered. So the first and foremost, if you've made a pledge to donate, given the supply may still be a constraint in some areas, donate the doses you've said you're gonna donate. The second one would be the deliveries to COVAX. So as I said, COVAX essentially had its own pot of money, went to market as did high-income countries and attempted to buy its own vaccines. However, being a global kind of health initiative, and being an initiative that probably secured slightly lower prices than their high-income country counterparts at market, you can argue the pharmaceutical industry has somewhat deprioritized this client of, of the WHO, the global health uh, community. So the COVAX contracted doses, we know, and I think the stat was, what is it? 33% of the COVAX uh, contracted doses um, have been delivered. So a third of the doses that, high, that the pharmaceutical industry has said they will deliver to WHO and COVAX, have been delivered. Now, if, if this was any kind of interaction between a client and a customer, there would be ramifications of that. That's a side story. When it comes to the African Vaccine Acquisition Trust, and as Ken mentioned, um, at a kind of pan-African level, the African Union got together and said, actually, you know what? We can't rely on this global health initiative. So they got together, organized financing, and bought vaccines for the African Union. So this was called the AVAC, or the African Vaccine Acquisition Trust and 20% of the doses that they purchased have been delivered. Now, this could be due to the fact that actually it's first come, first serve, and that these companies are sequentially fulfilling orders. Um, so that's the first one on doses. The second one on dollars, we know the ACT-A, so the Access to COVID-2 Accelerator, this macro-level structure within which the vaccines pillar sits. So the vaccine pillar of the ACT-A is also the COVAX. These terms are synonymous. 
but the, this kind of um, act day, the financing of that is still live as we speak is around 48 billion US dollars. Of that, the COVAX facility, so this initiative is being run by WHO, Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, and others, they have an outstanding ask as we speak today of 5.2 billion US dollars. They have an upcoming financing pledge that will be coming up end of the month. And so the donors, the international community, international finance institutions, such as the World Bank, the IMF, et cetera, we need to find a way to come up with this sort of financing. So the second one of, of dollars, 48 billion outstanding ask for Act A more widely. Act A more widely covers wider than vaccines. So we're talking about diagnostics, therapeutics, and vaccines, as well as the auxiliary um, tools that will be needed. So PPE, et cetera. The third one is domestic vaccine manufacturing. So as Ken mentioned, pre-pandemic, our global manufacturing capacity stood around 5 billion doses. All of a sudden, COVID-19 hits, we could potentially have needed 15 billion doses for COVID-19 vaccine alone. So we potentially, at the time, needed to quadruple our global vaccine manufacturing to account for this newly demand of a COVID-19 vaccine without disrupting routine essential vaccines for measles, for the whole BCG, the whole host of other um, routine immunizations for childhood programs. So in my mind, we needed to be, have used all the tools at our disposal to kind of realize something that was operationally out of the realm of possibility, or at least it seemed so at, at the time. And some of the initiatives that were being set up to expand domestic vaccine manufacturing were what? The intellectual property waiver that the likes of MSF and others have been championing. And this basically says that the intellectual property model of you produce something and then you get exclusivity for a period of 20 years or so, that is not fit for purpose in, in the middle of a pandemic. The second one was on uh, flexible use of, of intellectual property through technology transfers that Ken was referring to. And this is where me as an innovator gives a, a third party the ability to manufacture my product under license to serve whatever markets and I get a return or a royalty in, as a result. We've seen companies quite reluctant to do this in an open manner and have instead decided to do this more kind of bilaterally on an exclusive basis. So that means me, AstraZeneca, or me, Pfizer, goes out and figures out which contract manufacturing organizations I can solicit or I can engage in to manufacture my product, but on my terms. So the two kind of initiatives for domestic vaccine manufacturing, the IP waivers or the flexible management of intellectual property, as well as the, um, the flexible um, open licensing or technology transfer, the two modalities that have been proposed, the CTAP or the COVID-19 technology access pool, nothing has been offered to that. That was a voluntary mechanism set, by, set up by WHO. And they basically went out and said, if you are a manufacturer, why don't you offer us the license and we will then go out and seek quality assured generic manufacturers to produce this product on your behalf. But again, in true fashion, we haven't seen a single company come up and offer something to, to, to seek that or this COVID technology access pool. And actually, on the one hand, you can argue, if you are Pfizer, you make 38 billion US dollars from one product. This is a cash cow you're not going to want to let up. So, you know, we have to also acknowledge that this is this huge money at stake here. And, and, and this global piece, this inevitably affects the bottom line of companies. Um, so that's the, the third view of domestic manufacturing. The fourth one is the domestic health systems. And the absorption piece that Lara was talking about, the very systems that we're expecting to deliver COVID-19 vaccines, these are systems that have traditionally been used to delivering about, I think at the, at, at the time, about 200 million doses. These are all the low-medicum countries within the COVAX collectively have delivered about 200 million doses pre-COVID for routine immunization. So this is yellow fever, 
you know, anything, your routine childhood immunizations. All of a sudden, we're saying these very systems have to deliver five folds as many doses. Now, add this to the complexity of, this is a donation endeavor where you do not know where these doses are coming from. If I was a low-income country, my own home country of Sudan, for example, and I was the Minister of Health, why would I divert resources for something that, and, and whip up frenzy and the demand for something that A, I do not have visibility on what is coming, if it is indeed coming. And secondly, if I have a whole host of other priorities, and you know, let's take the African continent, for example, the average age is about 18 years of age. So if this is a disease that predominantly affects a slightly elderly or more clinically vulnerable, then you can say, actually, from a priority setting perspective, for me, yeah, it's not the biggest deal I'm, 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 I've got going on right now. So all this sort of stuff has meant that actually the health systems that we need to deliver, the, deliver these COVID tools are very, very fragile. And as a result, when the doses do arrive, a lot of the times the kind of the, the logistics and, and the healthcare workers and the infrastructure is not braced to absorb these doses at the pace which will be needed to. Um, and then the fourth D, I would say, um, or, the, or the kind of last one is this, you know, pandemic preparedness. And essentially going forward, I think we need to use the momentum of what we're going right now to figure out actually what would it look like if we were to recreate this model, if this was to play out again, looking at all the lessons learned that we have now, what would this look like in terms of an optimal design of a future kind of pandemic uh, preparedness piece? And I guess that's probably uh, jumping a step forward, but yeah. We'll come back, we'll come back to that. First, uh, Ken and then you'd like to add on, on what needs to still happen now for COVID-19. Yeah, I have three things. One is, I, and this first one I think builds on something that uh, Laura said, Kamara might have touched on it as well, is that the, whether we're going to call it dose donations or sharing, whatever you want to call it, it needs to be much more systematic and done in a transparent way so that countries aren't receiving doses just before they're about to expire. Remember that there was a huge amount of vaccines purchased by largely wealthy countries, not just because they were being selfish, but because they had the resources to hedge their bets. They didn't know what was going to work. So they had these advanced contracts with five different suppliers thinking that probably none of them are going to work, but maybe at best one of them will. And we want to basically you know, buy enough lottery tickets that we might win the lottery. It turns out that all their lottery tickets paid off, or most of them did. So they've got a ton of doses. Um, but then the actual process of transferring those doses has been horrible. Um, it's been chaotic. It's been delayed. It's been and it well, it's been chaotic and it's been delayed. And so countries don't know what they're going to get when they're going to get it. Which builds on a point Laura made. The second thing is fund Covax because what we haven't talked about is that there are a bunch more vaccines that are just getting approved now. We're not going to be. We're not just talking about the same four or five vaccines anymore. There's a new vaccine by Novavax, which just got approved. Uh, there's a couple of vaccines being produced by producers in India that are now approved. There's uh, this vaccine, there's, there's, there's a whole series of vaccines that are finishing or have already finished their phase three clinical trials. And what we need to do is get those vaccines to have their authorization by the WHO so that COVAX can purchase them and provide COVAX with enough money to purchase a lot of those. Um, so like that will greatly relax the supply constraint. And the third thing is with the technology transfer, we need more of it. I agree completely we need more of it. Um, Laura refers to the project that MSF did with where they identified 120 something companies that could be making mRNA vaccines. 
if only the originators would work with them, share the technology. I actually think, Laura, that your 121 is low, that there's a lot more than that. I do a lot, I mean, from the research I've done in Latin America, there's a lot of Latin American countries that could do it if there was technology transfer that aren't on that list. Um, I don't think there's any shortage of firms that could make vaccines if the originators were to engage with them. I think we've always known that actually. The problem was the originators don't want to do it, except for, I mean, AstraZeneca seems to be the only one that is, like, is actively doing that. As Laura says, there's no, none of the, neither Moderna nor Pfizer slash BioNTech have been willing to do that with partners in low or middle income countries. So how do, how do you get them to want to do that? You, we've seen that just asking them to do it isn't working. We've also seen that just telling them to do it isn't working. Um, or the U.S. government has been, has been telling Moderna to do it for a year, and, it, and it's not working. One way you can actually get them to want to do that is basically buy a ton. So late 2021, the U.S. government, I think, said they were going to buy 500 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine for global distribution. Well, Pfizer can make that. What if the U.S. government said instead of buying five hundred million doses, we're going to buy five billion doses. Pfizer couldn't make that unless they found producers. They would then basically get involved in technology transfer. If you make, like, because they know who those 121 firms are. They, they know the firms that are out there. They just don't want to do it. They don't need to do it. One way to make them need to do it is basically say, if you do it, you're going to make a, you're, you know, you're making, what, 38 billion or whatever they've made. Well, they make 380 billion. I mean, if it's worth it, do it. And so if you basically make the prize big enough, they will then find more partners, licensees, and engage in technology transfer. Um, that's not, that, that is a, they might say we can't do 5 billion, you come on in 3 billion. But the point is, if you make it big enough, they will find partners, transfer the technology. They will do what they need to do to supply the, the, the purchase that they've agreed to. Um, and you can do that with Pfizer, you can do that with Moderna. Um, and that might actually make the technology transfer problem. Uh, that might actually allow the technology transfer to happen. Thanks, Ken. So our third question then is, what lessons can be learned to prevent such inequalities in the future, uh, in relation to future pandemics, but also maybe in relation to broader uh, access to health products? I mean, Carl, you, you started touching on the end, but you also mentioned earlier that we, we there was a sense of inevitability when COVID-19 hit that there would be these inequalities. So what, and, and CEPI and these other initiatives were almost put in place as an attempt to learn from them, but clearly they haven't necessarily managed to, to prevent the inequalities we've seen. So what kind of things do we need to see happening now that will, when the next pandemic or big health issue emerges, make it not seem inevitable that, that it's going to play out in the same way. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess with the pandemic preparedness piece, you have the kind of international health regulations comes, covers something more widely. So this covers everything from when WHO declares the pandemic through to what uh, member states ought to do. But I guess for my kind of particular area, it's the pharmaceutics piece of pandemic preparedness. And I think looking at it from a kind of R&D um, production and deployment, from an R&D perspective, this, this kind of world's insurance policy, so this product development partnership that I mentioned has been set up to cover some of the market failures in global health R&D, 
that had an, an investment case that was out of 3.5 billion US dollars. So COVID-19 was the perfect advert for a product development partnership such as SEPI, where you take front-loaded public investment, multiple partners, including the private sector, to come up with commodities and navigate some of the challenges in, in R&D for this kind of subsector problem. Now, one would think that the COVID-19 was the best advert and that this PDP or this product development partnership, when it goes out asking for money from donors, this will fund itself. 8th of March, which is what, a week ago, SEPI um, launched its investment case of about 3.5 billion US dollars, which in the grand scheme of things, some of the money has been pumped around, even from a kind of domestic fiscal response, uh, from a kind of social protection perspective or from covering, you know, the furlough scheme or whatever you want to call it, globally, some of, some of the money that's been unleashed are kind of ludicrous figures. So this world's insurance policy against future pandemics has one out and asked donors for 3.5 billion US dollars. You can guess, you know, a, a question to the group. Do you reckon that was kind of fulfilled by donors? No, we got 1.5 billion. And so, you know, if the pandemic, when we're still in the middle of it, wasn't enough to get everyone kind of waking up and saying, actually, this is a piece that we need to kind of get right, then yeah, I'm not sure what will. So from an R&D piece, CEPI, which is the central world's insurance policy, that hasn't been fully funded and that's got an active kind of uh, ask as we speak. Um, I guess from a kind of production piece, and that's a piece that probably kind of um, either Rory or, or kind of Ken scholarly work probably kind of covers, the global production piece all of a sudden has become front and center and more of a national security agenda. As I said, I think there's been a, an acknowledgement that, you know, is, does the globalization piece actually work in the short term? It may have achieved you kind know, of race to the bottom prices in terms of the big manufacturers in the Indian continent that are supplying majority of the, globe, the kind of uh, the, the world's global health needs. But I think even the African continent has probably realized that actually, hold on, we need to kind of engage in some sort of kind of industrial policy or self-sufficiency endeavor. And what do we see them do? They started something called the PAVM or the, um, the Partnership for African Vaccine Manufacturing, where they basically said, okay, hold on. We, we cannot have this happen to us again. It happened in 2009, happened in 2019, and you can be rest assured that the same is gonna happen again in the next pandemic. So they then got very high level kind of political will translate into a kind of tangible initiative to expand domestic vaccine manufacturing from 1% as it currently is. And I can't remember what the threshold they set for 2050. 60% or something to that effect. Yeah. Um, so the domestic vaccine manufacturing or this diversified global um, network of vaccine manufacturers, I think that's something a lot of countries have realized we need to engage either in bilateral partnerships with intellectual property manufacturers, whereby we go to the likes of Pfizer, we say, listen, we're willing to de-risk your investment. You don't have to build and have boots on the ground. Here's all the paperwork that we can provide for you. We're on a quality assured domestic vaccine manufacturers give us the intellectual property and the tech transfer so the know-how how to manufacture and we will produce and give you a return on sales if you think about it it's almost like a franchise model call it nando's call it mcdonald's there is very little to lose but for the franchise for the franchise uh, and the franchisee essentially takes up all the risk because you're the one pumping the money all you need is the recipe essentially so i think this pandemic has made a lot of countries and a lot of regions whether at a kind of individual country level or a regional level realize we need to kind of invest in domestic vaccine manufacturing so that when this thing hits, once the gene sequence is out or once the, the kind of the pathogen genetic uh, or genomic sequence has been released, 
we can get our domestic manufacturers or our, our domestic researchers quickly to try and manufacture this thing locally. Um, so that's on the, um, on the development. The lastly, on the deployment piece, and I would say this is where the pool procurement piece comes in. Bear in mind, if you were to go to market and ask a vendor as one entity for any particular product, you're not going to get essentially the best price. And that's why, because you're not achieving this economies of scale that often comes with pool procurement. And what we've seen with this pandemic is the likes of COVAX procuring vaccines on the behalf of 92 low-medical countries. Now, that's a kind of quite a hefty clientele to be procuring for. And the idea is that actually you will get this kind of lower um, pricing through a high volume, low price model, because at the end of the day, with pharmaceutical companies, the equation is basic. Expenditure or revenue is a function of price times by volume. So the money you're making is either you jack up the price, sell a handful of products, and the similar sort of model would be like Mac computers. You sell a handful at $1,000 each, or you adopt the Windows model of high volume, low price. This is the Indian generic vaccine manufacturers or the low medical country or the developing country vaccine manufacturers. So the other one would be the pool procurement. And I would say for the first time, we've seen countries get together and collaborate at a level which we never thought was possible. And I remember going to a, um, a, a meeting in South Africa where we were trying to encourage middle-income African countries to get together and procure vaccines for their run-of-the-mill routine immunization program. And all these kind of hurdles were put in place. It's not feasible. Pharmaceutical companies often get countries to sign confidentiality agreements. So when I sell you one vaccine, you can't disclose the price I give you to any other country. Otherwise, you're breaking contractual agreements. But this pandemic, what have we seen? The EU started procuring vaccines as a block. So you can imagine all of a sudden, you have monopsony power, whereby you're able to negotiate as one entity. The African Union, again, was able to kind of initiate uh, joint procurement and contracting as one entity. So for me, across R&D, across development, and across full procurement, I think there are lessons that can be kind of implemented and, and, and cemented. God forbid, in the next pandemic, these automatically policy responses come into play all of a sudden. So your kind of collaboration at a kind of pan-African or a kind of uh, as a block, um, the, the expanded global manufacturing already exists. Hopefully, those seeds have been planted in non-wartime. And the R&D that we're referring to, the likes of CEPI are fully funded with access conditions strictly embedded in those contracts to say that if we receive funding from us, there is an expectation that you're going to do X, Y, Z. So these are the three areas that I would, I would kind of say going forward, you probably ought to kind of have hopefully fully cemented uh, now that this has been quite a, a bitter pill to swallow in the last couple of months. Thanks, Karan. Thanks. So um, as Karan says, I think we could have a more and better strings attached to funding for innovation for subsequent, for future uh, vaccines. And likewise, uh, the as I was saying before, the prizes sort of will be offered by the buy it and come up with it to be made bigger. So in some ways, I would say one of the, the beauties, we got lucky with, the world actually got lucky from Operation Warp Speed, but it wasn't big enough. And so one lesson is that we needed Operation Warp Speed uh, for the world. Uh, the local production agenda has certainly taken off. As Karar says, everybody's excited about it now. Um, but this will have the issue of, there'll be a lot of idle capacity. There's gonna be periods in which there's gonna be factories that are producing a lot of vaccines. And so figuring out a way to keep those going and you know the budget, who's gonna to pay to keep those going? Who's gonna to pay to keep the rooms sterile? Who's gonna to pay to keep people employed? I think it's a lot more complicated than people think. Building 
building local capacity for the next pandemic. The next pandemic might come in 10 years, it might come in 10, 10 months, it might not come for 40 years. Um, and so it's not clear what all that capacity is gonna do in the meanwhile. Um, and so this is, as Rory could talk about uh, probably more than any of us, the sort of local production agenda has been come and gone in, in sort of cycles over the last 20 years. And this might just, and it struggled to succeed. The last thing I wanna say is I think we could, and this is a bit out of the box, but I think that we need to, for future pandemics, I think we need to think more about the regulatory side of this. And you might ask like, why don't vaccine producers around, if all of, why, why, why are there just more companies just making these vaccines? And it's not because they're worried about getting sued for intellectual property infringement. Uh, it's largely because they can't make them without the help of the originator. But even if they could make them without the help of the originator, because they're vaccines, they'd have to run their own clinical trials. And so, which would take a long time and cost a fortune. And that's just different than drugs. Like the, the pills that we take, if a company can reverse engineer it, which they are easier to reverse engineer, but um, we have like, we have path we have regulatory pathways that allow generic drug producers to enter the market without running massive clinical trials. It's much more difficult for biologic drugs, and it's almost non-existent for vaccines. And so, even if you can reverse engineer the vaccine on your own which is actually happening now in South Africa at this mRNA vaccine hub. I mean, it's a tiny bit, it's like microliters. It's not even enough to put into a person, but they'll be able to do it. They're gonna to have to run their own trials. And thinking creatively about, well, asking the question about why, regula why regulatory barriers are so much different and so, and so much higher in the case of vaccines than other pharmaceutical products and how to perhaps They'll never be the same as in generic, as in generic drugs. But how to make them less daunting um, is, I think, something that the world needs to be thinking seriously about. Uh, and I know that Laura and her colleagues are thinking about that, uh, and uh, for for future pandemics, not for this one, but for future ones. Laura, that seems a good place to bring you in for our uh, final set of panelist comments before we open up for q a so would you like to continue there yeah and well i think it's super exciting to look into pandemic preparedness i just want for a second to stick with COVID 19 because it's not over yet right and i think it's important again even though i know uh this lecture is about vaccine inequality to also look into treatments and diagnostics right we see that specially treatments are becoming the next access bottleneck so they're not available in many countries where they're needed especially in countries with like low vaccination rates uh, especially in countries they're extremely important where there is not a like high level intensive care available. Um, and I think also today, and probably most of you, some of you follow the nerdy discussion around like um, intellectual property rights at the World Trade Organization. Today, some countries came forward with a proposal where instead of like excluding intellectual property rights for all COVID-19 medical tools, um, this new proposal is only suggesting to do it for vaccines. And I think this is extremely important to see again, 
why they're doing it and what's the outcome, because in particular, intellectual property barriers exist for diagnostics and treatment. So this is something we should keep in mind. Secondly, I fully agree with what the others already said on creating sustainable infrastructure. And I think we have to be careful what's happening at the moment and what kind of details are are in contracts, for example, with the biotainer idea from BioNTech. I think some of you heard about the futuristic containers being produced in Germany, then being shipped to African countries to then at some point in the future produce around 50 million mRNA vaccines in the year. Well, this sounds extremely exciting. And I think also for countries where there's really no manufacturing capacity like Rwanda, for example, this is clearly not the fastest way to go, right? And I think this is to some extent also a maneuver from BioNTech and others to just shift the attention and just have them again in the center and say like, well, look at us, we are bringing containers to Africa. And so we're saving the world when instead we could create more sustainable ways of like having production and manufacturing capacity. And lastly, um, I would like to um, follow up on a point. I think, Kara, you mentioned global health security. And this is like my personal wish for the future and for pandemic preparedness going forward, that I hope the world learns from COVID-19. And I really hope that we can maintain some of the attention we have now seen in high-income countries on COVID-19 also for other health emergencies, such as malaria, such as tuberculosis, such as snake bites, because the pandemic had a very devastating impact also on like normal health infrastructure in many countries where we work. And I think it's important to strengthen healthcare systems and to also make sure that this market failure we, we touched on earlier is is, is, is getting closer and then we see more R&D and more strings attached to public funding also for neglected diseases. So basically more change and not so much charity. Thank you so much, Lara, and thank you to all three panelists for a really, really rich set of contributions.